If you would open your Bibles with me to Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel chapter 22. I think it was 1979 that I first heard this expression. Speaking of our nation, the only hope for our nation as far as survival is concerned is revival. Our only hope for survival is revival. If this was true in 1979, how much truer is it today? It was true in the time of Ezekiel the prophet. Israel was in a mess. And the Lord speaks through Ezekiel. Verse 24 of chapter 22. Son of man, say to her, that is to Israel, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things and have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean and have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Two people that contributed to the problem that Israel faced the prophets and the priests. What's the difference in a prophet and a priest? A prophet was one who spoke to man about God. A priest was one who spoke to God about man. A prophet, one who speaks to man about the things of God. A priest, one who speaks to God about man. And you understand that Jesus has become our great and faithful high priest. So where we still need prophets today, the Bible teaches us that we've become priests and able to enter the presence of God and speak to God about our own lives. Verse 27, her princes, the princes in this sense, for us today would be politicians. Her princes are in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey to shed blood, to destroy people, and to get dishonest gain. Corrupt politicians. Sounds amazingly familiar. Again, her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God when the Lord is not spoken. 
When God, God settles up accounts with the inhabitants of this place called earth, I think one of the amazing things that's going to happen is the fact that those who claim to speak for God in a prophetic sense are going to have to answer for the fact that in many situations they've said, thus saith the Lord, when God has not said that at all. And it's not just saying God said it when God didn't, it's saying things that God says that we ought to say that we don't say. In fact, folks, I'm one who believes that it's the preachers of this land who carry a tremendous responsibility for the moral and spiritual decline that we are seeing because we've not stood and said, this is what God says instead of this is what I think. The result of the priests and the prophets and the politicians, verse 29, the people of the land have used oppressions, committed robbery, mistreated the poor and needy. They have wrongfully oppressed the stranger. And here's the verse, verse 30. So God said, I sought for a man, not men, a man. I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it but have found none. There was no one. God is saying, I look for somebody who would stand in the gap. Just one person. So that I would not destroy the land, but I didn't find anybody. Basically, this one that God's looking for is what we would call today an intercessor. A lot of times we refer to our praying as intercessory prayer when it's not according to what Scripture describes as intercessory prayer. An intercessor is one who takes a place in the middle of sinful man and holy God and said, I'm laying my life on the line. Exodus chapter 32. Moses had been on the top of Mount Sinai to get the law. While he's up there, the people think that Moses has deserted them and they appeal to Aaron. We think Moses has bailed out on us, Aaron. We need a God, make us one. And so the golden calf was made. God speaks to Moses on the mountain, says, Moses, you need to get down and go see about your people. I thought they were God's people, but God said, hey, Moses, go see about your people. And Moses said, just stay cool, God. It's not that bad. Until Moses comes and actually sees what's going on, and he said, God, it's worse than I thought. They were having an orgy around that golden calf. And God said to Moses, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to destroy them. 
Don't try to stop me. I'm going to destroy them, and I'm going to start all over again with you. You'll become the new Abraham. You'll become the father of the Jewish nation. And Abraham says, not so, God. If you're going to destroy these people, your people, you destroy me too. Just wipe me out with all the rest of them. Moses placed his life on the line. He was an intercessor. He was standing in the gap. I believe God still today is looking for people who would stand in the gap, who would become an intercessor, who would lay their lives on the line like Moses said he was willing to lay his life on the line. But when we think about somebody like this standing in the gap, we think, well, you know, what we need is another great preacher. We need somebody like the Wesley brothers to come on the scene again and preach so that we can have a great awakening or we need another Jonathan Edwards or we need another George Whitfield or we need another Billy Graham but not necessarily so folks I want to share with you this morning five examples in history of ordinary people who stood in the gap. Just ordinary people. And they made a difference. This first story that I want to share with you has interesting ramifications for where we are in the life of this church. The year was 1857. The nation was facing some tremendous problems. The economy was in terrible shape. The country was tremendously divided over the issue of slavery. There was a church in New York City on Fulton Street. It was a Dutch Reform Church located just several blocks from 9-11 Ground Zero. The Dutch Reform Church on Fulton Street was in a transitional neighborhood and businesses were moving in as people were moving out and so they made the decision to move from lower Manhattan to upper Manhattan. But the people felt like they needed to keep some kind of ministry there in the old facility. So they selected a man, a businessman, a layman. His name was Jeremiah Lanfear. His job was to come up with some kind of a ministry that would continue there in that location on Fulton Street. He had no idea what he was going to do. But as he walked around through the city, he noticed as he would come in contact with the businessmen, the anxiety and the care on their faces. And so he made a decision. 
he decided that he would start a prayer meeting at noon on Wednesdays. He publicized it all over the place. First Wednesday came, noontime, he prayed alone. Thirty minutes later, he heard footsteps. And then there were more footsteps, so that when the time for prayer ended, there were six people who had met together to start what today is known as the Fulton Street Prayer Meeting Revival. They were going to meet again the next Wednesday, and they did, and there were a few more people, but in that prayer meeting, they decided instead of meeting just on Wednesday, they wanted to meet every day. And in a matter of weeks, every room in that Dutch Reformed Church was filled with people praying. Outgrowing the space there, other prayer meetings began to materialize in other churches in the area. And in only a short time, there were 100 prayer meeting sites all over the city of New York. People crying out to God, people begging God to intervene in the situation that they were all facing that seemed to be helpless and hopeless. You don't come before holy God with prayer like that in such a concerted effort and not expect results and the results began to be seen. In a very short time, 50,000 people were converted and trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You say 50,000 doesn't sound like a whole lot in a city like New York, but I remind you this was 1857 in the population of New York City at that time. It was only about 800,000. But the impact of that revival began to spread other places and in 18 months, it was recorded well over one million people who had been saved and had trusted Jesus and had their lives changed as a result of one man, Jeremiah Lanfear, a layman. Just calling some people together to pray. It was in the late 1800s. In the late 1800s, in Wales, in the United Kingdom, there was a family there that had 13 kids. Times were tough. There was a young boy who was a member of that family who had to join his father working in the coal mines at the age of 11. School was over for him. He had to work in the coal mines. But he took this as a call from God. His name was Evan Roberts. Seeing this as perhaps an opportunity to minister for God at night, he would take a Bible and he would copy verses of Scripture out of the Bible. And the next day in the mines, he would give these little copies of Scripture to the miners and ask them to read them. And then later in the day, he would ask the miners, what do those verses of Scripture say to you? 
As he grew older and got into his early 20s, he felt the tremendous call of God to preach. But he'd had no training. He was just a simple boy who had a heart for God. He began to preach wherever he could preach, and as he would preach, there would be a movement of the Spirit of God. And revival broke out. When the revival started to break out, bars would close. Houses of prostitution would close for no business. It's said that in six months, in six months, over 100,000 people had come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior as a result of the preaching of one person. Evan Roberts became an intercessor, but his prayer was just too words, actually three words, prayer, Lord, bend us. Lord, bend us. And before long, the influence of the revival that took place in 1905 in Wales had spread not just across the United Kingdom, but across the ocean, and the impact was being felt here. In our nation. There was a young girl. Early in the 1900's. Who felt God calling her. To the mission field. And she responded. Her name was Bertha Smith. She went to China. And while she was in China. A revival broke out there. Known today as the Shandong Revival. Opposition to the gospel was pretty much the same then as it is now. But the Spirit of God was moving. And there were amazing things that happened in China during this time. Martha Smith reached retirement age. Little, bitty, short, unassuming lady. She came home as a returned missionary. You come home after spending your life in a place like China, you think you just want to retire and sit down and not do anything. But as she returned home, she began to see the agony and the hurt and the helplessness and the hopelessness in the lives of people all over the place here in the United States and especially in the lives of preachers. And so she said, God, here I am. Use me as you will. She began to hold spiritual life conferences in churches. And when she would go to a church in a particular town, she would try to get together as many preachers as she could. And she would share with them an amazing truth. She would ask two questions. Number one, are your sins confessed up to date? 
Somebody said, we sin retail and confess wholesale. We'll spend a whole day, come to the end of the day, God, if I've sinned today, forgive me. What do you mean, if I have sinned? Instead of getting specific and saying, God, I just sinned. The attitude that I just had in this situation was not right, it was sin. The second question was, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Folks, there was a time where as Baptists we did not talk about the Holy Spirit. And the reason we didn't talk about the Holy Spirit is that we were afraid that somebody would think that we were one of them if we talked about the Holy Spirit. And we didn't want anybody to think that we were one of them. But Bertha Smith said the reason God moved so mightily in China was because the Holy Spirit was given freedom to live the life of Jesus Christ in and through us. And pastors began to grasp the reality of the Spirit's presence in their lives. One of those pastors that was so impacted by Bertha Smith, you find on television all the time today, his name's Charles Stanley. He came to understand that it was not his effort, but the Holy Spirit's power that made the difference. Closer to home, John Wright was pastor at Forest Park here in town. Not John Wren. John Wright was back in the late 60s and early 70s. John Wright went and heard Miss Bertha talk about being cleansed and confessioned and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And he came back and began to share with the congregation there at Forest Park what God was doing in his life. They say there would be times where he would get so overwhelmed with what God was doing in his life that he would be on his face on the platform. Flat out. And God began to move and God began to work in that church. I've had people tell me that regardless of where you were on Saturday, somehow or another, you got home for Sunday because you were afraid you'd miss something that God would be doing. How long has it been since we've been like that? Nineteen seventy. A little Methodist college in Wilmore, Kentucky, Asbury College. There were a group of girls, just college girls, that began to pray that God would send revival to their campus. And they prayed faithfully and continually till one Monday night and they stopped praying. And someone would say, that doesn't sound very spiritual, but it was because God had said, I'm sending revival. The next morning was chapel at Asbury College. Chapel started at 10 o'clock. 
they did the preliminaries, they sang a little bit, and then one of the uh, staff there at the college got up, shared a little bit, and then said, I want to open the pulpit here for anybody that wants to share. And they said immediately there was a line that formed. And that chapel service continued 24 hours a day for seven days. Few little girls. But you know what? Wasn't confined to Asbury. When they finally closed chapel, the students began to go out all over the country to other college campuses, to churches, and all they would do is just share what God had done. Not any of them were dynamic preachers. They were just simple people. I was a student at Southwestern Seminary when all of this was happening, and there were three of those students from Asbury that came to the seminary. It was a Tuesday morning. We had chapel. We had the regular boring chapel speaker that morning at 10.30 when we should have dismissed. The evangelism professor Roy Fish stood up and introduced these three students from Asbury. One of them stood up behind the platform and said this, Jesus is Lord. That's all he said. Jesus is Lord. I blinked my eyes, folks, and I looked, and there was a line of seminary students that had formed to begin to share what God was doing in their lives. Some of them confessed to cheating on tests. Can you imagine seminary students confessing openly that they had been cheating on tests? There were students who had weekend pastorates who were standing up and saying, I've just realized I've been going through the motions, but I've never trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I've got to go back to my church field and confess to the church that I've never been saved and find somebody that will baptize me. But that was happening all over from just a few little girls that prayed and said, God send revival. It was in December of that year that I graduated from seminary. We moved to Morristown, Tennessee. I was the associate pastor and youth director of the First Baptist Church, County Seat Town, East Tennessee. Got there the day after Christmas. One of my first responsibilities was to organize a trip for our kids to go to Nashville to attend the Tennessee Baptist Youth Evangelism Conference that was held at Vanderbilt University in the Fieldhouse. So I was all excited. Arthur Blessett was going to be the speaker. And I'd heard Arthur before and I thought, boy, this is going to be great. He's going to challenge these kids. We're going to see God do a mighty work. So we had about 60 that went. 25,000 people there in the field house. And what a disappointment it was as far as our kids were concerned. First time I'd ever been around kids who were on drugs. I'd been around kids in high school that drank, but I'd never been around kids on drugs. The drug of choice in those days was Quaalude. And these kids were popping Quaaludes. I remember one kid we had. you remember boom boxes? We had this one kid, and he had a boom box. And he was listening to Jimi Hendrix play the Star Spangled Banner. Do you remember Jimi Hendrix?
Jimi Hendrix playing the Star Spangled Banner didn't sound like your band, Mike. Little aside to that, folks. Jimi Hendrix was doing a concert down in Houston. And everything was going wild, and somebody yells out, You're the truth, Jimmy! You're the truth! He stopped the concert. He said, Man, I'm not the truth. I don't even know if there is such a thing as truth. He said, If there's anybody here that knows the truth, you come up here, we'll give you the microphone, you tell us what truth is. We got home, I was so defeated and so discouraged. Next morning I get to church, the pastor says, Okay, now we want the kids to take the service tonight. And we want all the kids to share about all the things that happened at the Youth Evangelism Conference. And I'm thinking, are we going to play Jimi Hendrix tape? Are they going to talk about how high they got on quaaludes? They don't have anything to share. Oh, yeah, we're going to do it. And so we did it, and sure enough, it was absolutely worthless. And I'm totally defeated, thinking this is it. I made a mistake. After the service that night, one 18-year-old girl, high school senior, came to me and she said, I think God wants me to start a prayer meeting at school. And I wasn't going to discourage her, but I said, great, what day are you going to do? She said, oh, we're going to do it every day. And I thought, ah, oh, I don't want to see her brokenhearted over this situation. She said, we're going to do it every day. And I said, okay. That's fine. God bless you. She talked to a few kids that night at church. Next morning, I got a call about 8.30. She called. She said, we had six. Interesting. The same number that met with Jeremiah Lanfear to start of the Fulton Preach. Street uh, prayer meeting revival. And the next day they had more, and the next day they had more, and the next day they had more. That was East High School. Then it jumped to West High School. It ended up with about 175 at East, about 200 at West, just because of one little girl. After a couple of months of that, these kids came to me and said, we want to have a crusade. What they meant, they wanted to have some kind of an evangelistic crusade. And I said, great, we'll try to do it this summer. They said, no, we've got to do it this spring because all the seniors will graduate and we'll miss our opportunity to share Jesus with them. So guess what? It happened. We went to the gym at East High School, packed it out every night, five nights, Monday through Friday night. At one point, I knew how many kids were actually saved what I didn't know was how many kids were led to the Lord during the school day by other kids. Next year for the Youth Evangelism Conference, they asked Kathy Long, who was the little girl I'm talking about, to come share her testimony. 25,000 people, she's going to share her testimony. Her alcoholic father went to hear his little girl. Share her testimony. You want to guess what happened to her alcoholic father? Got saved, trusted Jesus, invited Jesus into his life, went home, poured all of his liquor out, never drank again. Just one. 
one little girl. One little girl. I wonder if there's one here this morning. Hey guys, in January I'll be 72. It is hard for me to say that. I don't feel that old. I don't want to be that old. And I'm not interested in a rocking chair. I don't know what God has in mind for me. But I'm here as one that wants to say, God, if somehow or another I can stand in the gap and I can be one, I want to be one. I don't read that there's any age limit in Scripture on how God can and will use you. But I want to be one. Anybody here? Want to be one? Jamie shares with me, as I know he does with others from time to time, his burden to see God really do something here. To see something happen that's not explainable in human terms. And I feel for him when I stand down here in the invitation time on Sunday morning and he stands here because I've stood here many times and knew that there were people who needed to make decisions but who didn't. And I know the brokenness of his heart when nothing happens. And I try to encourage him and said, just be faithful. Just keep preaching. And God has said, in due season you'll reap if you don't give up, if you don't quit. And it's not time to quit, folks, is it? It's time to say, I'll be warned.